Welcome to Women in Electronics, the only show that empowers, develops, advocates, and celebrates the accomplishments and advancement of women in the electronics industry. With your host, Jackie Maddox. Well, hello, and here we are again today, Women in Electronics radio program. We have Adam Norwood here from Amphenol. I am so excited for our Leader in Highlight program. Um, Adam, how are you? Welcome to the program. Well, Jackie, it's uh, great to be here, and I'm doing very well, doing better just to see your face on our little Zoom here, um, but I, I certainly appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you today, and first and foremost, wanted to wish you all the best and hope that you and yours are all staying healthy and, and thank you as well for all what you do for women in electronics and for the industry in, in its totality. Oh, well, thank you for that, Adam. I was telling you, and not to embarrass you, but I was so excited to interview you. Um, you have so much to tell. And, and before I met you, we had a conversation before the interview. Um, and there's just so much to you that is you know, we probably can't pack that all in in this short amount of time. So let's just get started um, with asking you some questions about your leadership journey. Um, you know, to preface this, Adam, I'm so interested in talking to you because more now than ever, leadership is so important and how we treat people, how we lead people and how our industry is going to come out the other side of recent circumstances, um, you know, with so much going on in the globe and the pandemic, you name it. So it's such a critical component to talk about leadership. And I feel that you are an exceptional leader, but I wanted to just get into our first question for you. So how did you get your start in the electronic component industry? It seems like we talked to different leaders and everybody just kept, fell into it somehow, but your story is pretty unique. Um, so why don't you start with telling us your background and how you got here? Yeah, uh, well, it's it's a long story, I guess, in some respects. And in other respects, it's kind of a short story. I got lucky. I, mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, I, I was not an engineer. Uh, so I joined an industry where being an engineer is a really important thing. And I was the farthest thing from an engineer. Um, I was the son of a, a dairy farmer and a plumber. And, you know, actually, it's funny, I ended up working in the connector industry, and we make sort of the plumbing of the electronics industry. So in many ways, the apple didn't fall too far from the tree in, in that respect. Um, but I, I found my way to, to Amphenol totally by happenstance. Um, I, I was a lawyer in Los Angeles. And uh, for not very long time, I was actually a pretty dissatisfied lawyer. I had made my way to law school, which I loved, um, sort of via wanting to become a diplomat. I had gone to, to university where I studied international politics, and you know, I'd sort of left the dairy farm. I got a scholarship to go to boarding school in New Hampshire. Uh, decided I wanted to be a diplomat or something like that, and 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 on the way to that, said law school would be a good thing to do. Um, and, and then somewhere along the line decided that was really a bad idea. Um, I spent three years in law school and about 22 months as a lawyer. And that 22 months is actually great right now because I'm finishing my 22nd year with Amphenol. So wow. I spent 22 months as a lawyer and, and 22 years now with Amphenol. 
Um, and, and so I decided actually uh, what, what was not a very smart financial move that I'm going to quit being a lawyer and go back to business school. And I uh, applied to a, a couple of places. And one of them was this wonderful school in France called INSEAD. And, and one of the reasons I decided to, to apply there was it was a one-year program. And I got in and was on my path to sort of quitting my job as a lawyer, going to business school, and then sort of seeing what would happen thereafter. And, and I got from a friend a job posting for a company I had never heard of, which is Amphenol, um, looking for someone to do merger and acquisition research in Asia. And the criteria for the job was you had to have some M&A experience, which I was kind of an M&A lawyer, albeit a pretty junior one. Um, and you had to speak an Asian language. And I had uh, just through sort of curiosity started learning Chinese in high school. And then I continued that in university and actually studied uh, in, in Beijing in 1988, and then in Taiwan in, in 1990. And so I actually spoke pretty good Chinese at the time. And so I knew this was not a job for me because they were looking for an MBA summer intern, and I was not yet an MBA. But I anyways, took the initiative and sent off a, a note to, to the company and said, I'm, I'm not qualified, but I'd love to meet you for future purposes. You know, one of these informational interviews that you're taught to do back in school. Yep. And then I got really, really lucky because I was the only applicant for the job, even though I wasn't <laughs> an applicant. <laughs> and so they kind of had no choice. If they wanted an intern, it was kind of me or no one else. And, and I think, that, you know, the gentleman who had posted the job, he was kind of late in posting it. And uh, so I somehow got hired to go move to Taiwan for, for half a year and be an intern looking around for, for acquisitions. And and that's how I fell into the industry. I, I, I always joke that you know, the day before I started, if you had asked me you know, what a connector was, I had no idea. If you took like a duck and a pizza and a connector and put it on a table, I'd probably pick the duck and say, that's a connector. I, I had no idea. I, you know, I, I kind of liked technology, like I played video games as a kid and stuff like that, but, but I was not at all of technology. And, and yet when I came to the company, it was really, in many ways, love at first sight, and and you know I I can bore you with lots of stories about why that was, but but it it was just one of those situations in life where you just get really really lucky to meet the right person mm. or to meet the right organization, and 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 I had that real stroke of fortune, and that mm. was back in 1998, 22 years ago. Well, I have to say, I think a lot of people feel lucky when they have met you and fell under your leadership because everybody I talk to who works with you just absolutely adores you. And you have a way of inspiring your team, which I love. I love that about leaders, when they can inspire people to reach their best and beyond. Um, and you have that ability. But I want to backtrack real quick because you kind of breezed over this. And this is the part I want to ask you about. You, from what I remember, you applied yourself to Phillips, uh, is it Exeter Academy, when you were 14 yeah. years old. Maybe you yeah. can just talk about that real quick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a long time ago, 37 years ago, I guess. Um, I was living in a real small town in the Ozarks of Missouri. So I'm from California. My grandfather has a ranch and my family has this ranch in Northern California. And we wanted to have a dairy farm and it was always my dad's dream to be a dairy farmer and we had some sheep and, and some pigs but 
but we really wanted to be dairy farmers or he did. And uh, we didn't have enough water on our ranch in California. And so we decided to, we, I mean, I was young at the time, but my, my dad and his brother decided to uproot their families and drive across country to rural Missouri because land was cheap and cattle were cheap. And we didn't have a lot of financial means at the time, but it was a kind of a dream to, to fulfill. And so I ended up in, in rural Missouri, and that uh, was quite a culture shock from, from California. Uh, we were in a small town called Norwood, Missouri, population of about 350 people. Interesting, I went back to Norwood, Missouri late last year for the first time in 35 years, and it still has about 350 people. It hasn't changed at all. Um, and, and I was in school, and I was in a, a, a small rural school, K through 12, that had about 150 people. Um, their, the highest level math class they taught was algebra, which you could take as a senior, and they had one semester of Spanish, which you could take as a senior. And that was it. I, and so I, I, was, uh, I was a little bit antsy there, let me say. Um, I, I did some sort of stuff on the side. I worked on building computers a little bit and things like that. Um, but a, a, an old friend of my mom's um, from, from Los Angeles came to visit us once and saw that I was kind of bored in school and said, you know, have you ever thought of applying to boarding school? And, um, you know, the answer was no. I didn't even know what the concept of a boarding school was. Um, so she said, well, you should look at it. And she told us about this book to buy called Peterson's Guide to Secondary Schools. We bought this big book and I thumbed through this. And you see this sort of dreamland of these extraordinary places that have not just one semester of Spanish. They had like 10 different languages you could take for four years at a time. You could do studying abroad. There were 100 clubs. The buildings were beautiful. The gyms were beautiful. And it was just like reading. It was almost like when I was a kid, I used to read the J.C. Penney's catalog for Christmas to look at all the toys. Yeah. It was like that, but schools. And, um, and so I applied and you know, kind of blindly applied. And again, I got lucky. Um, I got into a couple of schools, and one of them was Phillips Exeter. I got a full scholarship. Uh, we, we really had no financial assets or means. Um, and, uh, and I went sight unseen. Actually, I never visited. Um, I did my interview in St. Louis. Uh, and uh, so in, in August or September of 1983, I... Uh, my my dad drove me out there and dropped me off, and and that was uh, that was one of the most amazing transformations for me. And I still have some of my closest and best friends or kids who I met, you know, in the fall of 1983. Um, and it was a real transformation and an entree into a world that uh, that I didn't really know existed at the time. Wow. That is just incredible to me. From a little town of 350 people to, uh, you know, where you are now. And really, at that young age of 14, you took that initiative to do that. That changed your whole life. So I just find that is absolutely incredible. So kudos to you and also your family. What an amazing family you have, you know, that they were willing to let you go do that. Um, I just think that's incredible. So that's just a neat story, Adam. <laughs> no, I mean, I give a, you know, I, I did it not despite my parents and I, my parents were wonderful and very supportive. It, it was tough. I mean, you know, the, they even just, you know, buying me a plane ticket home was a, was a big problem for them. And, you know, I was far away. I had a baby brother who was born just two months before I left. So my, 
my mom gets the rare distinction of having raised two only children. <laughs> so it was kind of, that was kind of strange as well, but, uh, it, but it was, it, it was a really wonderful thing. It was tough at first, but, but really, really wonderful and, and, and transformative for me. And I think it's a good message that change is hard, even if it means to advance, it's hard, but it can lead somewhere really great. Um, and you knew that at a young age and, you know, unfortunately we're, we're, I'm going to skip to another question for you because we are going to have a part two. Who knows? It might be part three. <laughs> I feel really, I, I feel really sorry for anybody who has to even listen to part one. And I mean, heaven forbid these poor people who have to bear with part two, but no, please. <laughs> they're going to, we're, we're, this might go on Adam. And I'm telling you, I'm writing the book on you because you have just an amazing story, but I um, wanted to ask you just so we can ask you maybe one more question before we conclude part one. But what do you see, like, what does success mean to you? Because we have so much in the next part I want to get into with you with, you know, your leadership principles and all these things, because you have so many nuggets that it's, you just don't even have enough time in this, you know, last question to ask you. But what, if, if we can just leave you with this, obviously at a young age, you had an idea in mind what you wanted for yourself. So if you could look at, Right now in life, what does, how do you define success? Well, I mean, look, I, I think the most important thing for me and the way that I define success is the relationships I have with the people close to me. My, my wife, who's just unbelievable, my kids who are extraordinary, my friends, my colleagues, and I think at the end of the day, you know, financial success, which is for many people, the benchmark or title success. I mean, those things, you, there's always somebody who's going to be ahead of you. And if you get so caught up on chasing, you know, that next dollar, or that next title, you, you one day probably find that the real success is the satisfaction of being with the people who are around you. And I, I feel just extraordinarily fortunate in that in that respect as well, and you know I'm I, I I'll tell you one thing in Amphenol, you know, and you didn't ask me about Amphenol, but but something that I'm truly proud of, and if, if the thing that I'm probably most proud of in Amphenol is, and I don't track this, and it sounds funny probably to say it, but anecdotally. I think we have one of the lowest divorce rates of any company I've ever been exposed to. Wow. The number, I mean, it, it's, it's tiny. And, you know, I, I know a lot of people in this company and they've all managed to have wonderful families with, with you know, in, in, in whatever way they chose to have a family or not, or, or what type of family, the, the, the sort of sanctity of that has been very consistent with the company. And that's something I'm really proud of, actually. You know, that's when I think about all the statistics that we have, you know, we, we outgrow the industry, we, our profitability is great, our financial condition is wonderful, our market cap is great, all of that. Like, I see the fact that, you know, we have 81,000 employees. That means we have more than half a million people, probably, who are somehow linked to us through, through a, a nuclear family, let alone probably millions of people who are, somehow associated with us through extended families. And, and I, I'm just so proud of, of the, the personal success that the vast majority of our people have had. And that's what I'm most proud of myself as well. Okay. So the fact that you even track that is phenomenal. And 
I am just shocked right now because in, this is one of the reasons that I think that you keep surprising me <laughs> is because you say things like that that I think most le- leaders don't even track or think of. And I find that to be absolutely amazing because it's what we need and the productivity in a company. How much more productivity do you have when you have happy families Um, And so I was going to ask you that one next. We're kind of going off track with our questions. But so segue from there, you know, what do you think about Amphenol? And as far as in the market, obviously, you're a company that has all the values for an employee to work at and feel that they can have a good balanced life. But what are some of your other advantages in the market uh, that you see with Amphenol? Why you stay on the top in the industry? Well, it's, it's actually the, it's the exact thing that attracted me to the company the first day I walked in the office. Wow. And, and that is that our culture is truly unique. And, and when I say it's truly unique, I know every CEO says their culture is truly unique and it's kind of droll to say that, but we have a, a culture based on people who, to whom we give authority and from whom we receive accountability for, for their performance and, and they, they are as if they are entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. owners of the company. We have 125 general managers around the world. And each and every one of those general managers, these men and women from all walks of life in all geographies, they, the buck stops there. And, and that culture of entrepreneurship, we call it the Amphenolian culture of entrepreneurship, it is really unique. We don't have shared functions in the company. There's no corporate allocation. If you run a business in Amphenol, your P&L is your p and don't, We don't allocate them something from headquarters. We don't have any matrix structures. If you, you have one boss in Amphenol. You don't report also to some functional leadership in, in, in some other part of the company. And, and that sanctity of the general managers, the, the entrepreneurs around the company, that's what attracted me on day one. I, I went to work in Taiwan. I showed up, my flight landed at five in the morning. By eight in the morning, I was in the office. And, and I was borrowing an office from a gentleman named Casey Liu, who was our general manager in, of Amphenol Taiwan back in 1998. And I was amazed because this guy was in charge of his business. He ran the whole thing. He got to make every decision. And sure, there was some coordination, there's collaboration around the company and all of that. There's certain control systems because we're a public company. But this person ran the business. And, and I was so amazed by that. You know, in, in Chinese, in Taiwan, there's a saying that at least the person selling peanuts on the corner is his own boss. And, and I think inside our company... You have people at very early stages in their career, and for me, I was 31 years old when I first became a general manager, who are truly running businesses and learning how to succeed and fail and make mistakes and, 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 and build a team, lead a team. And the skills are so transferable. I mean, the fact is, what I do as a CEO today compared to what I did as a, as a 31-year-old general manager is not categorically different. The numbers are bigger. I've got a few more commas in my numbers and, you know, I have some other duties like meeting investors and, and things like that. But the actual task of running a business and knowing that at the end of the day, there are certain decisions that come to your desk that can't be put into someone else's, that's the same. Wow. And, and, and that, that culture in our company is our, is our real secret weapon. It's why we perform well in good times and bad. It's why we've been so successful in times of crisis, including, including this one. 
it, it creates agility that is unlike any other flexibility. It, it, it enables also a deep sense of ethical responsibility for people because you're in charge, so you better do the right thing. It, it, it's just a really, really virtuous approach to running a business. And, uh, and, and that's ultimately what has distinguished us, I think, for many, wow. many years. Well, Adam, that's amazing. Um, so your humble beginnings to still your humble leadership now. I love it. And we have to wrap up right now, unfortunately. But I told you I'm hitting you up for another part uh, because I have so much more to talk to you about. But this was phenomenal. I, I really, truly enjoyed talking to you. I appreciate that you gave this time and looking forward to our next interview very much. Well, Jackie, thank you very much. And again, I I apologize to anybody who has to listen to me. And so I apologize to <laughs> you as well. Like but most importantly, I, I want to wish you all the best and hope that you and all of your friends and family stay safe as we get into this you know, little bit more tricky period in the pandemic. You know, that's the most important thing to, to stay vigilant and safe. Yes. Um, and, and I certainly look forward to being back in touch soon. And stay well. You too. You've been listening to another episode of Women in Electronics right here in Orange County's only community radio station, octalkradio.net.